Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're here with us in the West service or over in our East service or watching online. Thanks for spending some time with us this weekend. Uh, Hey, I do want to just take a second and appreciate the affirmation that you've given uh, me this past week. Someone asked me when the results of the vote were in how I felt, and I said, well, it's that this place has felt like home for a long time. I think the most encouraging thing for my family is that we can now say uh, for sure it is home. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I also want to say that while I take the vote as personal affirmation, and I'm very appreciative, and more than anything, I take it as affirmation of of where we are as a church, just the health of our church and the, the direction that we're headed. And I want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm a small part of that. I'm a representative of that. So many talented men and women uh, work day in and day out to serve you, to help you grow, to help lead us on mission. And I want you to know that your vote is as much about them as it is me. And I know they appreciate that affirmation uh, as well. Hey, I'm really looking forward to wrapping up our sermon series on Revelation, We're calling it eternal hope. We've been looking at the promise of heaven that is on the horizon and not just looking at what's on the horizon, although that's so incredibly exciting and encouraging to do, but also asking if that's what's on the horizon, how does that inform moving uh, in that direction today? In other words, what impact does that hope have on our day-to-day life. And we're gonna be wrapping that series up here. Uh, I've heard from so many of you from the news and social media fast. Uh, It's funny because I would divide your comments into two groups. One, into people saying how appreciative they have been Uh, If you're like me, you've realized how many times you reach for your phone uh, in the span of a day, and that's a sobering thought. I hope you found the week to be restful and encouraging. I hope you felt like for once you could focus on what was in front of you because you weren't inundated with information. I also thought it was hilarious all week when people were reaching out to me for a ruling. Uh, Can I watch The Guardians? Is that allowed? Uh, What about the weather? Does that count as news? (laughs) You know. So I just appreciate that you're earnest enough that that you wanted a direct ruling from a pastor uh, this week. Uh, So, hey, if you have your Bible, let's wrap it up together by opening to Revelation chapter 22. We're going to look at the last or first five verses of the last chapter of the Bible. 
Hey, if you're here and you don't have a Bible or maybe don't even know your way around the Bible, uh, first I want to say how glad I am that you're here. You're in absolutely the right place. Uh, you have been on our mind and our heart as we prepare. We don't want anyone to feel left out or to feel like they're behind. So if you don't know your way around the Bible, I want you to know that in this service and in East, we provide Bibles for you. And here, they're in the pew right in front of you. In East, they're in the back of the room. And I actually preach from that Bible so that I can tell you that today's reading is on page 978. So you don't have to know how to get there. Just use the numbers. Although I will tell you the next page is blank. So it's the end of the book. So just start from the end of the book and go left. You'll find it uh, pretty quickly. But hey, thanks for being here. And I hope this service is an encouragement uh, to you. Uh, as we look at this passage, I do have three points for you. And I don't know who snitched on me, but I'll find you. <laughs> and my penance is that I brought a prop today, so we'll get there. Uh, but, but three points I'm going to use to guide our time looking at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Three points, and they go like this. I want to talk about life forever, real life forever, and real life today. Okay, life forever, real life forever, and life today. All right, let's start with the first one, life forever. Uh, the first thing is really simple, and it's not going to take me a long time. It's just that I want you to know that when the Bible talks about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the life that is to come when this life is over, one of the things it does tell us is that we will live forever. Now you might say, well, yeah, Zach, of course. Everybody knows that about heaven. But the truth is that there are a lot of things that a lot of people think are in the Bible, think that God has said, think that God has promised that he hasn't that aren't in the Bible. So every now and then it's good to just check and say, hey, we're, we're pretty sure this is true, but like where does this idea that heaven lasts forever come from? Where does this idea of eternal life come from? And of course, there are many places the Bible will talk about it, but one is here. If you look with me at Revelation 22, verse 5, it says this. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Forever and ever. So the, the Bible is telling us that this life, this life is terminal. This life doesn't last. You know, I told you my birthday's coming up. This week I turned 40 and that feels to me like a significant birthday. I saw an older member of the church this morning and he said, how old are you going to be? And I said, 40. And he said, only 40? And I thought that makes me feel good, right? Yeah. But from my perspective, 40 is a big number and it feels like, I mean, I don't know what the Lord has planned, but it's possible that more of my life is behind me than is ahead of me. And that's natural. Life is terminal. It, it doesn't last. This life won't last forever. We are all going to die. But the life to come, the Bible tells us, when we think of what happens after we die, we think about being with God in heaven. That life lasts forever. There'll be no fear of it ending. We won't, we won't live with death as a shadow over us. We won't worry about what might come our way, what might befall us, because that life will be forever. So if you thought the Bible teaches that, you should be encouraged. It, it does. Life lasts forever in the world to come. 
But, but I was thinking this week and thinking that if, if, if we aren't careful, that actually could be bad news. What I mean by that is that when we say life forever, if what we mean is this life lasting forever, this life with all of its difficulties, this life with all of its brokenness, this life with all of its pain, with all the scar tissue, if I'm going to be the way I am now forever, that might actually not be encouraging. So that leads me to my second point, which is to say it's not that we're going to have life forever that the Bible is encouraging us with. It's this, that we're going to have real life forever. There'll be a difference between the life to come and the life that we have. It isn't just this life done again or this life in perpetuity. It's real life, really living, that will last forever. There's a difference between the life of this earth and the life that is to come. To to show you this, let me use an analogy. Uh, Denise our wonderful women's ministry assistant, brought in produce this week from her garden. And uh, out of the kindness of her heart, she shared some with me. She brought me some tomatoes. Now, I know what you're thinking, Zach. Last week you said you're not a vegetable guy, but a tomato is a fruit. Okay? It's a loophole. All right? So she brought in these wonderful tomatoes from her garden. And actually, when she brought them in, I was excited to try them. So I took a bite of one of these, these little cherry tomatoes. And when I took the bite of that tomato, my first thought was, what have I been eating my whole life and calling a tomato? It was awesome. I mean, it was, if I didn't know better, I'd eat this right now. It is so good. They are amazing tomatoes. It was awesome. I mean, I, I've had tomatoes before, but this tomato was incredible. And it wasn't even in a, in a salad or with like mozzarella and olive oil. It was just the tomato by itself. And it was an explosion of flavor. And I thought, what is going on with the tomatoes that I am eating every day that they don't taste like this? I mean, I'm like you, we pick tomato, well, hold on. I'm like you, we order online and someone else picks our tomatoes when we go to pick them up from the grocery store, but, but they pick good ones. It's not like when we get home and we take our groceries out, we're looking at rotten tomatoes or, or tomatoes that look bad. They're good, decent tomatoes. They're fine. But then it occurred to me that, that, that I've been settling for average tomatoes my entire life. I mean, tomatoes I eat are fine. They're, they're nothing to get excited about. But these, these are real tomatoes. And the, there's a difference, of course, because the tomatoes I'm eating at home are grown on some farm, probably owned by a corporation that's raising millions of tomatoes to get to millions of people like me. These tomatoes are from a garden where this, this wonderful woman knows every single plant. And she knows every single person she's going to take a tomato to, right? It's a labor of love. It's a labor of joy. That, that what she's making are real tomatoes. And then I thought about this. The difference between the tomatoes I'm eating in the grocery store and, the, and Denise's tomatoes is pretty much the difference between earth and heaven. Because what the Bible is telling us is that we have settled for a life that is fine. 
right? That's, that's, the, that's a good word for this life. It's, it's fine. I mean, there, there are some bad things, to be sure. There are some good things. This life is fine. We, we settle in for mediocre pleasures, for, for average kind of existence. But what the Bible is picturing is not just life forever, but real life. If the difference between the tomato in the grocery store and one of Denise's flavor bombs is this much, then the difference between earth and heaven must be impossible to measure. In fact, let me show you four ways from this passage that the writer is telling us it's not just life forever, it's real life. Four things that are going to be true of life in heaven that are going to make it better than just this life going on forever. Four things. Here's the first one. We'll be healed. We'll be healed. Look at the reference here. It says this. is a beautiful picture. Uh, in verse 2, it says this about the tree of life. At the very end of the verse, it says, The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the Bible tells us that in this life, we, occur, we incur a lot of pain, a lot of difficulty, a, a lot of struggle, but, but that's one of the things that marks this life. I mean, and you know this in a variety of ways. I mean, for example, if you deal with physical pain, if you have a, a back problem or a shoulder problem or a knee problem, chronic type pain, uh, you know that at some point you just kind of make your peace with it. You learn how to hobble through life. You learn how to settle for a life filled with pain. But of course, the life being pictured here is a life where your shoulder doesn't hurt, where your back doesn't hurt, where your knee doesn't give you problems. And if you deal with chronic pain, you probably can't even wrap your mind around that what it would look like, how different you would be, how different your personality would be if you just woke up pain-free. But of course, we don't have to limit it to physical pain. This world in, brings about a ton of psychological, emotional, relational pain. I mean, the truth is, whoever we were when we were born, whoever we were going to be as we grew up, has been altered, shaped, changed, reduced, minimized, just, just different because of the experiences that we've had. So much so that, that it would almost be impossible for me to know who even the real Zach is. If what you mean by the real Zach is who I would have been if I hadn't had this experience, who I would have been if someone wouldn't have said this or, or done that, if I hadn't said this or done that, I live as a version of myself that's been altered by the brokenness of our world, by the brokenness of my own life. So when the Bible says that the world to come will be a world of healing, what it's telling us is that we will be who we really are healed from all that's been said and done to us. I bet if I asked you to give me your three most painful experiences or the three most damaging things that someone has said to you, I bet you could do it. I bet we'd spend a lot of time weeping over those things. I, I know I would. But I bet you can't even imagine what it would be like to wake up and not have those words echo in your head. 
what it would be like to wake up and be set free from those experiences. It's not just you limping through life forever. It is you without a limp forever. Here's the second thing that the Bible tells us. It will be a life free from time. A life free from time. Look at what it says. There'll be no night. They will reign forever and ever. It is a world free of time. Now, that might sound funny to you to think of, well, what's the big deal about time? But time actually is a devastating construct. I mean, we're experiencing that as a church. The whole reason we're talking about succession is because of time. But when the the elders came to me and said, would you consider succession? I said, my first response was only if Joe isn't going anywhere. I don't want him to go anywhere either. I don't want to even talk about Joe being anywhere else. But that's time. Time creates urgency, right? We, we do half of what we do because we have to do it right then. I remember when my daughter Ava was growing up. I've told you this before. She is a wonderful child. So if I said, Ava, go clean your room, she would say, okay, daddy. But if I assigned any time to it all, she would lose her mind. Ava, go clean your room. You have 30 minutes. 30 minutes? Oh, never finish. Right? But what she was tapping into is how something not stressful becomes devastating when you assign time to it. How many of us feel like if I don't buy a home this year, I'm never going to buy one. If I don't put money away for college now, I'm never going to be able to afford it. Right? We live with this clock ticking above us all the time. And the, of course, the flip side of that is we live with regret for all the things we didn't get done on time. For all the decisions we didn't make, time is devastating us. But in the world to come, whatever you didn't do this day, you can do, I don't know, 3,000 years from now. It's a world free from urgency, a world free from the choices we make because we have to make them. It's a world free from the regret we live with because we didn't make those choices. The third thing the Bible tells us about real life is that it's a world of beauty. It's a world of beauty. Everything in the Bible matters. There are no wasted words. So in verse 1, when the writer describes the river, he says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. He's wanting us to know it's not just any river. I mean, I grew up in southern Indiana on the Ohio River, and I don't know what color it is, but it's not crystal. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so it's a river, but it's not a sight to look at. But this writer says, no, 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 listen, heaven is the world, but it's in technicolor. It's beautiful. Everything sparkles, everything shines, everything is free of the things that reduced it or minimized it into something not beautiful. The rivers sparkle, the trees bear fruit. It is a world full of beauty. Sometimes the most devastating thing that can happen is when you're excited about something and it doesn't live up to the hype. Have you experienced this? You go to see something, you plan a family vacation, you load up, you go on a trip, you get there and everybody goes, oh, That's nice. But the writer is telling us, no, 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 no. The world to come will be a world of beauty, a world of things that sparkle, a world of things that capture our attention, that capture our imagination, that mesmerize us, that get us excited. And then the fourth thing the writer says is it will be a world of love. 
The last two verses, he focuses on the relationship we'll have with God. Verse four, it says, uh, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember, Moses asked to see the face of God and God said, you can't or you'll die. But that will be the regular person's experience in the world to come. We will see the face of God and his name will be on our foreheads, which is a metaphorical reference to the fact that we will be his and he will be ours. We will be in relationship with God, which means no more loneliness, no more isolation, no more feeling like citizen 3,603. We will will have our own and collective relationship with God. We will never be isolated. We will never be separated. He will never feel distant. He will never be distant. You see, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it doesn't mean this grocery store tomato kind of life forever. I mean, we would take that, right? If we couldn't get a better deal, we would take that. What it has in mind is real life. A life where you are utterly and completely healed, where I am set free from all the emotional baggage that I've just learned to limp with, where time is irrelevant, there's no urgency, there's no regret, where beauty is everywhere. And the kind of beauty that lives up to the hype and where God himself is face to face with us. It isn't just life forever. It's real life forever. But the point of this sermon series has not been simply to get you excited about what's coming, although I hope it's done that. I hope it has. But it's to help you connect what's coming, what's on the horizon, to what's in front of you today. It's to learn to live with eternal hope shaping our day-to-day life. So to get there, let me get to my third point, which is to say real life today. Real life today. One of the most fascinating things about this passage is something the writer is doing subtly but beautifully, and that's the parallel he is drawing between what's happening here and another part of the Bible. And interestingly enough, I joked earlier about this being the end, that the the, the page next to it is blank, but the parallel he's drawing is to the very beginning of the Bible. In fact, he talks about the tree of life, which if you've read the Bible, and I'm not assuming you've read it cover to cover, but if you had, alarm bells would be going off and you'd be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've heard of this tree before, the tree of life. Where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? And the answer is Genesis chapter 2. When God takes Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he rests them in a garden, this paradise that he's made for them, and he creates a world for them. And you know what that world was marked by? It was a world in which Adam and Eve were completely healed. They carried no baggage with them. No one had ever hurt them. No one, they lived with no guilt, no shame, no physical damage, no psychological damage. It was a world free of time. God tells them, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, but he doesn't give them a clock. There are no quarterly reviews. It's a world full of beauty. It's a world full of love where God walks and talks with them. You see, what the writer is saying is that God ends the story the very place he began it because all God has ever wanted to do 
was to bless his people with real life forever. It's what God was about in the beginning of the story. It's about, it's what God is about at the end of the story. Listen, I know our culture has, has led us to buy into this lie that God is the great minimizer, the great reducer, the great witherer, that what God wants is to suck all the joy and, and, and fun and beauty out of our lives and leave us as these kind of religious robots who are just content to do the things our church tells us to do. And I guess that might be true of some religions and some churches, but not this book. Because it begins with real life and it ends with real life because that's what God is all about. Let me use an illustration from literature. I don't know if you're familiar with Jane Austen's story, Pride and Prejudice. I am because I'm married. <laughs> and I've seen the movie a lot. <laughs> but it's this really cool story about Elizabeth, who is the proud of the Pride and Prejudice, and Mr. Darcy, who's the prejudiced. Elizabeth is a headstrong, independent woman in a time in which the culture did not celebrate that. And Mr. Darcy is a wealthy and prejudiced guy in a class system that looks down on those who are beneath you. And it's the story, of course, of them falling in love. But my favorite part of the story is when Mr. Darcy overcomes his prejudice, long before Elizabeth overcomes his, her pride, and he begins to realize, I love her, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue her. I'm going to love her no matter what society says. But she's rejected him. So, so he, no matter how many times he pursues, it doesn't matter. So he decides to love her in, in, behind the scenes. And the way he does that is he begins to solve every problem her family has. He, he saves them from debt. He saves them from scandal. Just one by one, every time her family comes up against a situation, it's resolved. And they don't know who did it and they don't know how it happened. They're just celebrating these amazing strokes of fortune they've had. And, it's, and you know as the reader, it's Mr. Darcy who is leveraging all that he has to produce Elizabeth's happiness because he loves her. And there's this wonderful scene in the movie where Elizabeth, who, who has been attributing the successes to this person and that person and that person and this person, there's this wonderful scene where she realizes all of a sudden it's him and she looks at him and she says, it was you, it was you the whole time. Friends, this is what I'm telling you. The story of the Bible is so similar to that. That the, what is coming for all of us in Christ, is that we will look to God and we will realize that all the moments we thought he was against us, all of the moments we thought he was absent, all of the moments we, we, we wondered if he cared or we wondered what he was doing, that he has only ever relentlessly been pursuing us, having real life. We will look at him in that moment and we will say, oh my goodness, it was you. It was you the whole time. And I suppose God will say to us something similar to what Mr. Darcy says to Elizabeth when he says, surely you must know everything I did was for you. Friends, what if, what if, what is behind everything God is doing and saying to us is his desire to lead us 
to life. You see, that realization is the difference between a Christian life that feels like being in a river swimming against the current. Fighting God at every turn, resisting his contradiction, resisting his authority, resisting his desires, resisting his plan, swimming against him. And a Christian life that lets the current take you. Because you know that the only place he's ever wanted to take you is real life forever. What if God isn't out to minimize you or wither you or reduce you, but rather to do what he wanted to do in the very beginning. To create an opportunity for you to really live. Elizabeth needed big things from Mr. Darcy to see his love. It wasn't until he had rescued her so utterly that she could see it. And I know how hard it is to believe that God wants good for you, not bad. I know it. I live in the same culture you do. That's why, friends, it's so important that we see that the river of life in this passage is flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Because Jesus Christ is God's crowning moment of saying to us, don't you see? I'll send my own son He'll give his life. He will stand in your place. He will take on your sin. He will willingly die on your behalf so that when he raises from the dead, you might be included in the world we have built. Jesus is the starting point of realizing that the culture is wrong about God. He doesn't wither. He doesn't diminish. He doesn't limit. He doesn't inhibit. He and he alone knows what it means to really live. Heaven is coming, but the invitation of this series and of all the Bible is to let God as your father take you by the hand and walk you there himself. Why wouldn't we want that? Let me pray for us. Father God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Some days it it feels as though we are hardwired to disbelieve you, to, to reject you, to refuse you, to see something sinister behind everything you say and everything you do, to relentlessly trust ourselves in spite of lifetimes of evidence that we, above all people, are the most untrustworthy. Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts and minds, whether we're here believing or we're here hearing for the first time to help us see the love of God in Jesus. Help us see a God from whom it would be foolishness to run. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.